You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. We're here today to talk about um, uh, what, what has for me actually become a really important conversation in one of my classes. So I teach, E.J., as do you, I teach, uh, I teach a New Testament class. You're a New Testament scholar, but I teach a survey course at uh, the university where I teach at Bushnell, and one of the core sections of this uh, class that I teach is on um, a smaller subsection of the writings of the New Testament known as the prison epistles or the captivity epistles. Right. These are these these particular letters, which include, uh, for example, uh, Philippians, um, uh, uh, likely, you know, second Thessalonians, um, a, a number of Colossians, yeah. potentially Ephesians. There, there's a series of writings that were written by um, Paul or the apostle or an apostle from prison. And I've been, I've been lecturing uh, a bit on this section and found it actually with my students. It really connects mm-hmm. uh, because we are hearing the voice of uh, one of the earliest Christians as they are literally uh, in some kind of either Roman prison cell or under house arrest and right. to see how they think about Jesus uh, behind, uh, prison walls. So I want to talk today, we're going to talk about the spirituality of, uh, the prison epistles. Mm -hmm. Um, what can we learn from somebody in prison as they are seeking to love Jesus? And of course, prison can be literal and it it can also be a a place in life where some of us may feel as though, you know, we're in a marriage that feels like a prison or, or being a parent is like being, uh, in prison or, we're experiencing singleness and it feels like we're stuck or we're in vocational prison or we're stuck in our faith and we don't know how to get over something. I think all of us can experience a prison on some level. What do we, and how do we think about those experiences similar to the way the authors in the new Testament uh, uh, do? Yeah, I love that. Um, Just a couple, couple interesting um, academic things. One is, um, you know, in New Testament studies, and it has its own weird rules and, and background, uh, there scholars talk about the undisputed letters where they think that Paul wrote the text himself, like Romans or Galatians, and then the disputed uh, letters where there's some debate within scholarship about whether Paul wrote them. Unfortunately, some of these prison epistles fall into that category disputed, which kind of marginalizes them and they're not taken as seriously. But one thing when I was researching for a book on Colossians, uh, which is one of these prison letters, uh, I came across um, the work of uh, the patristic writer, John Chrysostom. And Chrysostom doesn't, didn't know about our modern you know, authorship debates, but Chrysostom actually makes the argument the prison letters are more important than the letters that Paul wrote when he wasn't in prison. Hmm. And his argument is uh, when you're in prison, suffering for the gospel in those limitations, you know, in the darkness, in kind of the worst moments of your life, um, your true heart speaks, your true faith comes alive. Like this is, this is who you are under pressure and therefore this is really who you are. So I want to actually read hmm. a couple lines from Chris Awesome. Now, for those listening, he's actually famous for his rhetoric and his hyperbole. And you'll notice that, but I really like the way he says it. He says, Oh, those blessed bonds, the bonds, meaning the chains, uh, 
Oh. oh, those blessed hands which that chain adorned. Not so worthy were Paul's hands when they lifted up and raised the lame man at Lystra, or when they were bound around those with ch- uh, when they were bound around with those chains. Have I been living in those times? How eagerly I would have embraced them and put them to the very apple of my eyes. Never would I have ceased kissing those hands which were counted worthy to be bound for my Lord. Marvelest thou at Paul when the viper fastened to his hand. And did it hurt him? No, marvel not because it revered his chain. Yea, and the whole sea revered it. For then too was he bound when he was saved from the shipwreck. Were anyone to grant me power to raise the dead, I would not choose that power but this chain. Were I free from the cares of the church, had I, had I my body strong and vigorous, I would not shrink from undertaking so long a journey only for the sake of beholding those chains, for the sake of seeing the prison where he was bound. The traces indeed of his miracles are numerous in all the parts of the world, yet are they not so dear as those of his scars? My goodness. <laughs> yeah. Chrysostom known to be the golden-tongued preacher for yes. just such eloquence and rhetoric. But what he's saying, AJ, is really interesting. He's saying... Um, scars tell you a lot about a person. And I actually think of someone like Nelson Mandela and you can go to the prison where he was there for many, many years. And you can stand in that prison. I remember a scene from the movie Invictus where Matt Damon's character, I think a rugby player is standing in this little tiny prison cell. And and I also think of like Holocaust survivors and Mm. how much Mm. we respect these people who never signed up, uh, who never, you know, joined let's say a military or, you know, um, signed up for any of it. And yet we respect and revere those, uh, you know, that generation that, um, that lived through and, and many of them died in the prison camps. And so I, whenever I read the prison epistles now, I actually think about Chrysostom and his statement, those blessed bonds, Hmm. because the reality is um, many of us, AJ, run away from pain Mm -hmm. and suffering and God is not a masochist, but um, suffering teaches us a lot about who we are and it teaches us a lot about our faith Yep. Yeah. Rick, how many, how many times, by the way, are we told in, in, in the new Testament, um, this weird commandment, which many of us don't, don't even give much thought to. I mean, I, I don't know if I can think of a more than a handful of occasions where I have the, these commandments about remembering those in prison. Um, uh, Jesus in Matthew 25, I was in prison and you came and visited me. Paul's reference. Remember those in prison, the book right. of, uh, uh, Hebrews, uh, remember those who who are in prison. So to to actually think about those, not just when you're in prison, but thinking about other people in their prison moments, um, that we, that we don't run away from a prison and, and that it becomes a part of our cognitive psychology. We are always being brought, not just in our own stories, but we're thinking about others. So when, when we think about, um, those prison epistles. And again, we, we mentioned a few of them, for example, Philippians, Philemon, uh, potentially Ephesians, Colossians, these captivity Mm -hmm. epistles. What are some of the distinctive marks of these epistles? Let me offer one, by the way, that I think is really, really powerful. One distinctive element of a prison epistle, 
um, it, to me, comes out of uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. In mm-hmm. uh, Philippians 2, Paul outlines the famous kenosis passage, which some, as you are well, some New Testament scholars actually think is the oldest part of the New Testament. Uh, that was a, an ancient hymn that right. was sung about the nature of Jesus. And it's you know, the, the famous, you know, he made himself nothing, poured himself out as a servant. He, mm-hmm. he emptied himself. himself. Um, and, and in the middle of this uh, captivity letter, Paul gives a song, uh, this hymn. Now, that that wouldn't be the first time that the Philippians would have been f- familiar with songs, because when you right. go back and read Acts 16, when Paul is in Philippi, he's put in prison because the crowds rush at him. And it says at midnight uh, in Acts 16 that Paul uh, and Silas were in prison. And what does Paul do? He sings hymns he sings. at night and yep. the prison walls are opened up and he is released. Now, what's cool to me about this is that this church was founded because somebody sang a song, that yeah. the songs led to liberation, freedom. And now when Paul is writing back to the church in Philippi, he gives, um, he gives a song. He gives a song. And later in Ephesians, in, in, in Philippians, he, he, uh, you know, he, he talks about uh, these two women, Euodius and Tiki, who are at each other's throats. Right. And, and I've always wondered, you know, what would it be like to sing a hymn with somebody that you're, you're at odds with? What would it be like to sing a song? Well, you know, you put aside your differences and you sing together. Here's what I wonder. I wonder if part of our prison experience is that we need to return from time to time to our Spotify account. And we need to put, as we're working in our in our kitchens and we're stuck, that we put on those songs that we sang to Jesus when we first met Jesus. I mean, I can, I can think of some of those early worship albums that Rich Mullins did. And I'm telling you, when I turn those on, it brings me back to my love for Jesus in the midst of prison experiences. I think song is a critical, important part of singing, as Paul did, to sing when you're in prison, to sing when you're in prison. Uh, that brings freedom. For you, what's another distinctive element of these prison epistles when, when you read them? Yeah, you know, I you know, I used actually took Philippians. Uh, I, w- I wanted to talk about Philippians as well. I'll say something briefly. Um, I think when you're going through these, you know, low times, um, this kind of darkness, uh, this restriction, let, you know, I, I know it's not as big a deal as prison, but I broke my foot a few years ago and I was stuck at home, miserable, um, not able to move. And it did feel kind of like being in prison in the sense that I just Mm -hmm. felt isolated. Uh, I felt, um, just, you know, restricted at home. Um, you know, it, it, it can, it can seem like you're all alone and you're not living your best life, so to speak. And I think one thing that Paul does is he helps to connect their experience to the experience of Jesus. You talked about the Christ hymn. I call it the ode to Jesus, hmm. uh, Philippians chapter two, verses uh, five to 11. And he, you know, just like you said, um, you know, it talks about Jesus being in the form of God, which means he has the best of the best situation in heaven, the best seats. I kind of think about it like box seats at the great <laughs> game, you know, and, and yet as soon as the father says there's a need, right. You know, Jesus is on the edge of his seat saying, you know, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. Yes. You know, I'm ready to get my hands dirty. And it says he took the form of a slave. Now what's interesting, AJ is he didn't actually take the form of a slave. He took the form of a common Galilean, but the the movement from glory to Humanity. incarnation, yes. 
is like a king becoming a slave. He's, and that Paul's trying to convey the extremity of that, yes. what we call a condescension, this movement downward. You talk about emptying yourself. And what's interesting is crucifixion. It says he died on a cross. Crucifixion is the punishment associated with slaves because slaves were commonly uh, crucified for rebellion or whatever. So Jesus is known to be this deity, this glory figure that identifies with hmm. the least, the last, and the lost, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of this, you know, visiting people in prison, um, caring for the prisoner. Uh, you know, just like you're quoting from Matthew, you know, if you're going to do it for Jesus, uh, do it, do it for the for the man of the cross that identify with slaves. Yep. And even though Jesus wasn't in prison, I mean, he was probably chained. Um, but I want to switch over to Ephesians. Um, Paul does some interesting things in this letter. I mean, in his in his dark days in prison, I mean, people, I, I researched a lot of this for some research I did on uh, imprisonment in the Roman world. Um, there's a lot of depression. Uh, you don't know if you're going to live. You don't know if you're going to get out. A lot of people were tortured to death. People committed suicide. Um, you know, guards could get violent with prisoners. And so every time Paul goes to prison, which was many, he says, he's possibly not getting out. And I love what he says here in Ephesians chapter four. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner and the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond hmm. of peace. Now he's using this word bond, which in Greek is sin desmos and desmos is actually a form of the word chain. Fascinating. So he says, make every effort to maintain unity of the spirit, uh, oneness, oneness of the spirit and I actually imagine AJ him looking at his chains while he's thinking about yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. He's like, just like these chains hmm. are forming this yep. unbreakable ring around my arm. Yeah, that's keeping me in one place. Well, he he doesn't. It, it's a, remarkable to me, Nije, to, to add to that. And I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, th- there's an element at, at which Paul simultaneously talks about his chains, but he doesn't complain about them. No. So, so for example, in Philippians, back to Philippians, which you're bringing Ephesians up, Philippians, where he says, you know, I, don't worry about me. I'm in chains for Christ. And I'm even preaching Jesus while I'm in here in, in prison. Yeah. He talks about his chains, which is in one level a critique of our own modern American Christian way of life, which is that we tend to be very denialistic. We don't want to talk right. about our chains because it makes it look like we're failures or something. Paul is wildly comfortable talking about his chains and not being afraid of being written off as a failure. He sees his he sees his chains as glory. He's he's living right. into his glory because of his chains. So he talks about his chains. I mean, there's nothing. It's so liberating to talk to somebody when they're honest about the chains they're facing, when they're willing to describe their chains and how how difficult their chains are. It just invites you in to be honest about your own chains. He talks about his chains. But when I read the prison epistles, I see no element of complaint or bitterness that Mm -hmm. Paul has for what he's experiencing. He talks about them, but he's not sour about it. He's got an attitude of... A resilience, and he sees them as the grace of God. 
Yeah, and I'm sure he went through normal human roller coaster of emotions. He says in Second Timothy, he says to Timothy, "Please come visit me. I'm lonely." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yep. it's not that he's impervious to human vulnerabilities, but um, you know, it's interesting. Morna Hooker, New Testament scholar, points out that Paul in Philippians updates them on his condition, but he doesn't give them a lot of information. He doesn't, you know talk about himself too much. He just basically mm. says, um, I'm going to be okay. You know? Mm. And, and I thought when you went back to Philippians, you're going to go back to chapter four, because I think a lot of the gold is in chapter four. Cause he, he knows the Philippians are going through a hard time. They're not in prison, but they're going through persecution. They're going through kind of public, um, shaming for them being Christians and it's funny, he does a little bit of a kind of wordplay game with them. He says, I've learned the secret. And when he yes. uses the, the verb for secret, he, it's mu, muomai. It's actually a word from the mystery cults. Mystery mm. cults were these uh, groups that claim to have special wisdom from God that only a select few could yes. be privy to. And so he basically tricks the Philippians by saying, lean closer because I have a deep, dark secret. (laughs) Only a few people know, I know the secret to happiness, you know, contentment. And they lean forward and he basically just says, be content. (laughs) (laughs) He says, and his whole point is, and he's sitting in prison while he's doing this. His whole point is, um, I've known fullness. You know, I've been fat with the best foods, you know, steak Mm. and, you know, avocado toast and, you know, uh, you know, cupcakes, you know, I've, I've wined and dined, you know, in the best. He's like, and I've known days where my stomach is growling and I don't think it'll ever stop. Yep. And he says, I've known it all, but I've learned that this is just the way life is. It's interesting. He doesn't give fortune cookie advice in mm. prison. Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 I I remember reading R.C. Sproul when I was in high school, yep. and I don't quote R.C. Sproul very often, <laughs> but I remember him saying once that he doesn't like when pastors tell stories of getting saved from like an extreme trial, like, mm. you know, I was drowning and someone dumped it and saved me, or, you know, I was in a burning building and someone, you know, he says, I don't like those stories because not everybody's story has a happy ending. And, um, in a world, in a worldly sense. Yep. And, and, and I resonate with that because Paul didn't, doesn't say that to people. He does say this will turn out for salvation Yes. in chapter one, but he also says I might die in prison. Mm. And he actually says later on, I have to see how things go with me. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And there's, there's a real, um, there's not a saccharine false hope in no. Yeah. There's yeah. hope. And what does he say is his hope? He actually says the Philippians are. He says, You are my joy and my mm. crown mm. and my hope and my and my joy and boasting. Uh and he basically says, I will live on. If I die, I will live on in the great things that you do for the kingdom yes. of God. Yep. And and what we have living on are these letters. The fact that we're sitting here and reading these captivity letters is not only a testimony to Paul's words there, but simultaneously that he saw prison not as a problem, but a remarkable opportunity. That he right. wrote letters in prison speaks to the fact that he 
he, it's almost as always like, yeah, you can put me in prison, but you're just giving me time to get, get some work done. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going yeah. to be in prison and I'm going to write some letters. I remember years ago reading Cal Newport's book, uh, deep work, which is a book basically about how distraction has robbed us of what he calls deep work. And deep work mm. is, you know, uh, the work of, of somebody like, um, somebody like, you know, an, an artist in, in history doing the, the Mona Lisa or doing, uh, you know, David or these, these incredibly famous, you know, artistic creations that it took 20, 30 years for some people to do this deep work. And we've replaced all deep work with really shallow work. Paul, he's, he's in a prison cell. He's locked away. Uh, he has a, he has a a flat surface, which in the ancient world was really common to come uncommon to come by. He's got, he's probably got a a floor that's made out of rock or a flat surface where he can write. And, And he uses it as an opportunity to produce letters that you and I are reading right now. You know, it's. It, it, I was just going through some notes this morning, Nijay, and it, it's remarkable to me how many of the best writings in human history, how many of the best writings in human history about freedom are written by people in prison. Yeah. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who writes uh, his letters from prison. I think of Martin Luther King Jr., his yeah. letter from a Birmingham jail, which is mm-hmm. about you know the, the freedom uh, and, and the dream of a, a future where black people are actually treated like human beings and given mm-hmm. respect and honor. I think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago from uh, a gulag in, 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 in Russia. I think of Nelson Mandela, as you mentioned, A Walk to Freedom. Why is it that the best writings on freedom come from prison? And simultaneously, why the worst writings come from people in prison. Uh, of course, cue here, Hitler, uh, Mein Kampf, which was written uh, written in prison as well. What are we going to do in prison? Are we going to be a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Paul, and a Solzhenitsyn, and a Mandela? Or are we going to be a Hitler? Are we going to be somebody that produces vile hatred? Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, the, the, the prison reveals so much about who we are. What kind of people are we going to become? Are we going to become people that utilize this time to become deeper formed humans? Or are we going to use it to project anger and hatred on the on, on, on the world? You know, the, I love that you brought up Bonhoeffer. Um, I often share with my students a poem that he wrote from prison called Who Am I? Hmm. And I'm going to talk about the poem in a minute, but I think the what the prison does, whether it's you know a, a literal prison or whether it's you know this kind of dark night of the soul um, experience, whatever that may be, is it's it's clarifying because our our uh, worldly support systems, maybe mm-hmm. you know some of the bad ones that we have, are stripped away. And we're left to wonder about the meaning of life, who we are deep down inside. Bonhoeffer has this great poem where he says, you know, um, there are actually two Dietrich Bonhoeffers. There's who I think I am. And then there's what other people think about me. And so he says, you know, people tell me that when I step out of myself for a walk, I look like I own the place, like, like it's my cottage and I'm going on. You know, like he talks about how people's perception of him is that he kind of owns the world around him and he walks with majesty and grace. But then when he says about who he thinks he is, he says, I am a loser. I'm a nobody. I'm like a beaten army, he says. And then at the end, he says, you know, who am I? Am I what people think of me or Mm -hmm. am I what I think of myself? Uh, And then he says at the end, um, only God knows I am thine. 
And that's mm. like, that's this beautiful climax that um, prison kind of just strips away all these things and makes us just really stand before God and say, uh, what is this life really all about? Mm. Mm. Um, one of my favorite things that happens with Paul is that he writes this short letter to Philemon uh, on behalf of Onesimus. I mean, uh, he's basically trying to reconcile a slave and a master that are both now Christian. And it's funny because, you know, writing was a really difficult process in the ancient world, trying to get the materials and he's in prison. And yet this is on his mind. Like mm-hmm. that he wants to make yes. sure these two people shake hands and hug it out. Yes. Um, that's incredible because Ephesians yeah. is this lofty theological treatise that is about love and about the universal church uh, and, you know, the global church and uh, one spirit, one baptism. And then Philemon, the letter Philemon is almost the opposite in the sense it doesn't have any flowery theological language. It's just like, hey, mm. you guys mm. need to make up, make this right. Yes. Prison, deal with it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Who does that? Who who thinks about uh, when you're in prison, who thinks about trying to get two people to reconcile while you are in prison? I mean, it just speaks to his other centeredness. He's not focused on on himself. I mean, he's no doubt modeling this on Jesus, who from the cross um, says um, to those down below, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. It was just actually somebody just pointed this out to me. I'd never thought about this. Jesus doesn't from the cross say, Father, I forgive them. He says, right. Father, you forgive you. them. Yeah. And it, even from the cross, Jesus is doing the work of reconciliation. He's yeah. mediating, mediating his priestly role of, of mediating the Father and the, and the people uh, down below. But that just speaks to this deep sense of like um, contentment with your prison cell so much so that you can focus on other people reconciling them. It just speaks. Can I close by the way? Can I close with you? You brought up Bonhoeffer. Can I close with another little thing he says from prison? And it's, it, it, this is actually near the end of his life. He is writing uh, his last Christmas letter that he wrote his last advent letter. Hmm. And he's writing about being in a Nazi prison cell. And he says this, he says, by the way, a prison cell like this is a good analogy for Christmas. One waits, hopes, and does this or that. Ultimately negligible things. The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. Mm. And what, what Bonhoeffer is saying there is he's saying the Christmas story, Advent, Jesus coming and making himself the form of a servant coming to us is God opening the door of a prison cell that we could not open for ourselves. Mm. That Advent and Christmas is the ultimate hope that in the prison of our life, God will come and open the door from the outside. We cannot open it ourselves. We need somebody else to open it for us. So that have hope, friend, as you, as you listener, and Nijay, certainly you and I want to embody this ourselves, but all of us can have a sense of deep hope that there will be ultimate, ultimate freedom from the outside because of the work of Jesus. And that is the hope that we find in our prison cells. Absolutely. It's a beautiful message.